This is a Library Channel program from the UC San Diego Library. Visit us at www.uctv.tv slash library channel for interviews, author talks, and other programs that will inspire you to read, write, think, and dream. We are at a time of war in Ukraine right now. Um, we're also at a time of war in Israel right now. Um, for me, uh, as I'm sure for all of us, this is very distressing. Um, these are the two countries outside of the United States and Canada where I'm from, uh, where I spend most of my time. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, it is very distressing and very disturbing to me personally, and I'm sure to many of us here, uh, the current state of the world that we're in. Um, the talk that I'm going to give talks about a different time period in Ukraine. Uh, and I perhaps will make the occasional reference to what's going on right now. I'm happy to talk more about that in the question period. Um, but, you know, Ukraine, like all countries, has had a difficult history. Uh, and this is some of the what I'm going to talk about today are some of the more difficult times of uh, uh, in that country's history. And I hope that there will be better times in the future um, as well as in all other countries. Um, so I'm going to start this talk with this photo here. Um, this is a photo of my father sitting on his father's lap. Um, outside their apartment in Budapest in 1944. And this picture sat on the desk of my father's office, his home office, for my, my entire life. And it took me a long time. You know, I always saw it as just you know, a kid on his father's, on his father's uh, lap, you know, so just being outside in the nice weather. And it took me a while until I realized that they're wearing yellow stars. Um, that gives the photo really another another interpretation that one recognizes that this was a, another very difficult time um, in Budapest in 1944. And I was always struck by the way my father, who survived the Holocaust in Budapest, uh, spoke about that time period. And he would speak about his childhood in Budapest as being a very happy childhood, that he would spend summers in Lake Balaton, uh, he went skiing in the Alps. Uh, he lived in a, uh, in a religious family. He was born to a religious family. They would go to synagogue every Saturday. And he thought of Budapest as, as quite a happy place. And it's interesting that um, my parents recently moved out of the house that they had lived in my entire life and that I grew up in. And when they moved out, we were kind of going through their old stuff. And I found an old sketchbook of my father's from 1944. And this is a sketch that he made of Budapest in early 1944, before the Nazi invasion of March 1944. And you can see it looks beautiful outside. There's a blue sky, there's green trees, uh, there's also blue trees. Um, there's, uh, you can see the hills of Buda in the background and you can see the castle uh, with the Hungarian flag flying on it. And in the same sketchbook, this is a drawing that he made several months later after the Nazi invasion. And suddenly, everything is gray. And one of those says coal mine, and there's people hauling coal. And you can see the houses are all dark and gray in the background. One of the houses says Ferko on it. That's my father's Hungarian name. And the house next door to it says Zhuzia, which was the name of his best friend who lived next door. You can see there's an airplane flying over with a swastika on. And it really shows how much war changes things from one minute 
to the next or from, you know, one month to the next, how his blue sky suddenly turned gray. And that is something that we're seeing again in the world today. Um, I bring this up also because it's how most of us have been taught, or at least how I was taught, to think about the Holocaust as though it happened out of the blue. That March 1930, or sorry, uh, January 1933 came and uh, Hitler becomes chancellor of Germany and everything changes on a dime. And it's actually how my father talked about it again, that life was normal and then suddenly Hitler came to power and everything changed. For him, not in January 33 in March 1944 when the Nazis invaded Hungary, but still the things changed suddenly in that way. And it's the way that a lot of textbooks and a lot of writing about the Holocaust still portrays it as something that sort of came out of the blue. There's a Holocaust Memorial Museum not far from where I live in Farmington Hills, Michigan, uh, called the Zeckelman Holocaust Memorial Museum. And in it, there's when you walk in, there's a big open room. And the room has displays of elements of Jewish life from the pre-war period. There's one area that has all of these sports trophies and sports memorabilia from, you know, Polish Jewish sporting teams to show the variety of activities that Jews engaged in. And then another area has all of these newspapers in different languages, Jewish newspapers in Romanian and Hungarian and Polish and Yiddish and Hebrew and Russian, um, showing the variety of Jewish, uh, of Jewish journalistic life and, uh, and different types of Jewish press. And then another area has Jewish religious symbols, has spice boxes and menorahs and things like that, um, showing the variety of Jewish life, of Jewish religious life. And it's this big open room. And then you turn the corner in this museum, and there's a narrow hallway leading down, sloping down. And at the bottom is a huge portrait of Adolf Hitler. And that gives the impression that life was normal, life was beautiful, and then suddenly you turned a corner and Hitler came to power and everything changed. And that's a true narrative. Um, that is how the Holocaust was experienced for many people, as a sudden change. And that's the narrative that came to us from most of the immigrants who came to the United States from places like Hungary or Poland or um, Germany or the Netherlands, where maybe there had been anti-Semitism in the pre-war period, but for the most part, they were living rich, robust, violent, free lives when suddenly things changed. But it's not the way that a lot of Ukrainian Jews experienced the war. And I started to realize this in the early 2000s when I started traveling through Ukraine with my colleague Dovber Kerler, interviewing elderly Yiddish speakers in small towns in Ukraine about their lives. And I wrote a book about the experiences of these people. But one thing that struck me was the way in which they talked about the violence that they had experienced during the Russian Revolutionary Wars of 1918 to 1921 and the Holocaust. And they used similar terminology to describe them. And they talked about them as waves of violence, as one wave after another. They saw them as a continuity. They saw the Holocaust not as a sudden change, um, although it certainly did change things from the way they'd been living lives in the 20s and 30s, but they saw it as a continuity. They saw it as a part of a sporadic outburst of violence um, that occasionally occurs. And it's because they had experienced uh, un unimaginable violence between 1918 and 1921. And just to say a word about that 1918 to 1921, that period is sometimes called the Russian Civil War. Um, I'm going to try to avoid using the term Russian Civil War because 
that term comes from a Russian perspective, right? A civil war is a war fought between people of the same nationality. And Russia portrayed it as a civil war because the Ukrainian independence movement they saw as a breakaway from their own nation. Um, but for the Ukrainians, that was a revolutionary or that was a war of independence that ultimately failed. Um, so, you know, it's the same thing in the United States, right? We have a civil war, but only because the North won. If the South won, it would have been called the Revolutionary War, or the War of Independence or something like that. So we have to think about the way those terms, uh, those terms are used. So I'll call it the Revolutionary Wars or 1918 to 1921. But there was a great deal of violence in that region between 1918 and 1921. Um, most of Ukraine had been part of either the Russian Empire or the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Both those empires collapsed between 1917 and uh, 1918. And in their place, all of these other entities started to try to seize um, control. And those included a variety of Ukrainian states that tried to become independent, that tried to establish a Ukrainian state, Pol a Polish state. Um, there was a Russian imperial army called the White Army that tried to reestablish a Russian empire. And then there was the Soviet Red Army that tried to establish a multinational Soviet um, empire in the region. So all, and then in addition to that, there are all of these regional warlords that are vying for independence and anarchists that are vying for independence. So there's a great deal of fighting going on by different factions um, all fighting each other. And in the midst of that, all of them target the Jews. That the one thing that the, all these disparate units unite upon is that they view the Jews as a threat to their existence um, because the Jews are scattered throughout this entire territory. I'll talk about that again in a minute. Um, but first, I want to play you a few narratives of pogroms to give you an idea of what I'm talking about. Um, and these come from the people that we interviewed, again, with my colleague Dov Bear Kurler, um, between 2001 and 2010, we were doing the interviews. So the first one is a description of a pogrom in the town of Tulchin, uh, which is south of uh, Vinitsa, near the Moldova uh, border. And this is Nisan Yurkovetsky, I'm going to play you. And he talks, he was born in 1917. And the pogrom that he talks about, this anti-Jewish violence that he talks about, took place in 1919, in the summer of 1919. And he's going to show us, he's going to roll up his sleeve and show us a scar on his arm. And that scar, he says, is a scar from the bullet that killed his mother as she was holding him and the bullet ricocheted off his arm or ricocheted, whatever, damaged his arm as it killed his mother. And his entire family was killed and left in a mass grave. Um, a Polish priest was later walking by and discovered that there was a body still alive, there was a child alive in the grave and took him out of the grave and brought him up and then returned him to some distant family members. Um, so I'm going to play you a little clip of this segment of the interview with him. Um, you'll hear my colleague Dov Bear Curler asking him questions. Um, we always pay attention. We always try to ask for the names of people um, because we think it's important to remember names of the deceased and occupations because that's usually how they identified themselves by their occupation, by their way of living. And I'll talk about that again in a minute. Um, so here's the video. She could get my food. She can answer the Jordan. Granit. And foot a meter meter of the target. And answer the Jordan as the wind. And guns and sway you up. Oh, 
I want to point out a few things. I mean, there's a lot that one could say in that, including a lot one could say about the language. One thing I want to point out is when he talks about the pogrom, he uses two words to describe it. Sometimes he calls it a pogrom, and sometimes he calls it an aktion, using the German word for a Nazi-era uh, massacre of Jews. And I think that's interesting. We, we saw many times this conflation of the two terms, that the survivors of these pogroms between 1918 and 1921 view them along the lines of the Nazi-era massacres. And there's good reason for that. I mean, you hear what he's describing. It's a terrible experience um, of this type of violence. And of course, I should say this is the violence of the early parts of the Holocaust over the summer of 1941. Uh, this is before there were death camps. Um, this is when most of the killings that the Nazis were perpetrating uh, were killings of people um, by shooting, were massacres um, that resembled to those who experienced the pogroms that they had experienced 20 years earlier. Um, he also mentions that the pogrom lasted eight days. Uh, and he names the perpetrator of the, of the pogrom. And I'm sorry about that banging. Um, he names the perpetrator of the pogrom. He says that it came from the Lyachovich gang. The Lyachovich gang was a gang of local peasants. And he knew the name of them. These were people who lived in close proximity to him. So that's also interesting. Um, it lasted eight days, meaning it was a long, drawn-out thing. And then um, he says that it ended when the Polish priest came and told everybody to go home, perhaps the same priest who discovered him. That's kind of hard to, hard to ascertain. Um, but so this means that there's a level of violence where somebody of responsibility could come in and say, enough, everybody go home. These were peasants from the local countryside who had come in, were killing Jews, and they could say, go home, and they did. Um, this is a uh, document that I found in the YIVO archives in New York that was collected 
by a group of researchers in 1918 and 1919 who were researching these pogroms and taking testimonies in the immediate aftermath of the pogroms. This one's actually from 1920. And you can see, if uh, you can read Yiddish or see Russian, they mention the pogrom, they talk about the Lyachovich gang. Uh, you can see here the same word, Lyachovich. Um, and I guess the, but over here you can see in Russian, Lyachovich, and there in Yiddish, so it's the same gang. Uh, Yurkovitsky did not know about this testimony that was deposited in an archive in 1920, uh, so it kind of confirms his report. Here we can see that the pogrom lasted, in this case they say the pogrom lasted a full day, whereas Yurkovitsky said eight days. But this account says there were several pogroms over the course of a week. So it depends how one defines a pogrom. Um, but both stories do seem to... Uh, coincide with each other. And uh, this account says there were 500 people killed. You can see 500 there outlined. And then this account also has the same story over here about a delegation of priests, it said, came and told everybody to go home, and they did. So it's interesting that this archival document from 1920 has the same basic story that Yurkovetsky is telling. Yurkovetsky obviously doesn't remember the story himself. He was two years old when it happened, but he knows how it's been told to him. So this is one type of pogrom, one type of anti-Jewish violence that we see during this time period. I just want to talk a little bit about Tulchin. You can see in this chart that shows the occupational distribution of the town of Tulchin. And there was a stark differentiation between the types of jobs that Jews did and the types of jobs that non-Jews did. Barbers, coopers, glaziers, coachmen, tailors, dentists, doctors were overwhelmingly Jewish, whereas things like railroad workers and farmers were overwhelmingly Ukrainian. And this is common in most Ukrainian small towns, where the Jews were the artisans, they were the people, they, were, they did small handicrafts, they usually sold those handicrafts outside of stores that they had, and they lived in the center of town. So in any town, if you went right into the center of town, you would see all of these Jewish shops and Jewish artisans who were selling their wares. And then as you go out of the town, you know, in the little areas, little houses that adjoin the fields would be Christian Ukrainians. And then the peasants are overwhelmingly Ukrainian. You see that as well from these charts showing the distribution of urban versus rural residents in Ukraine, also in 1926. And you can see about 90% of the total Ukrainian population was rural. Only 11% lived in cities. By contrast, the Jewish population was overwhelmingly urban. 91% of the Jewish population lived in cities. So there's an overlapping of religious identity and urban versus rural identity that explains the roots of a lot of the violence. Um, so violence that we can see as anti-Semitic can also be read as town versus country. And this is after a period of four years of civil war, or four years of World War I, followed by, uh, followed by civil war, revolutionary war. Um, the peasants haven't been able to farm their fields. There's total chaos going on in the countryside. And the cities tend to have food and they have supplies. So a lot of the time, peasants from the surrounding countryside would invade the city in order to get supplies, in order to get food, in order to get shoes, in order to get leather goods. And what they saw as a requisition, the Jews saw as a pogrom. They would kill in order to get this food. And I'll talk about that more a little bit later. 
The next example I want to show is another oral history interview that we did. Uh, this is from the town of, uh, it's now called Chmielnitsky, used to be called Praskurov, and um, it's where there was another type of pogrom, one of the biggest pogroms of that time period, and I'll play you. Um, I'll play you a clip from it. You'll see in this one is very different. This is not local peasants from the surrounding countryside. This is an armed military division of the newly established Ukrainian National Army. Uh, it is called into the town or into the city, actually, in order to put down what they believe is a Bolshevik revolution. Uh, they believe there's a Bolshevik uprising taking place in the city. The Ukrainian military comes in. They immediately put down the uprising within hours. And then after they put down the uprising, the Ukrainian military moves into the center of the town and they massacre Jews, systematically going door to door, massacring Jews. And I'll play you an account from that. En de ganze gast had nog een argen in dieden. Hij moest nog een zagen in dieden. En we zagen ze zijn stiebaan. Geef goud of de ballon. En ze zijn gewoon sterk gekomen. Ze zijn gewoon niet gekomen. Ze zijn gewoon niet gekomen. Ze hebben de gisteren gewoon niet. En we hebben ze de kop. Na woest had ze gekeken in de reuzen. Om ze niet gegeven wist. Dat was ik wel niet. Dulling cap, dulling ant, dulling fish, and all the zane chavera mot nois garget, and here's me the matcha has given leben. Watchem all the young, om so gemischet, all the young. Again, from an oral history perspective, that interview is also interesting because he's not the one telling the story. Um, it's his wife telling the story. Um, obviously, a story that she has heard many times before, um, but he's nodding around, agreeing with it. And when he tries to add on something, she interrupts him and just points out that it tormented him his entire life. Um, but anyway, you see the impact of it. So this is a, that's a very different style of pogrom. It is a military unit that comes into town, as I said, and goes door to door killing people. We believe that this pogrom was probably the deadliest pogrom, the deadliest incidents of anti-Jewish violence that had ever impacted the Jewish people until the Holocaust. Uh, somewhere between one to 3,000 people were killed in the Praskurov pogrom. And we know that because in the immediate aftermath of the pogrom, 
people went over and took lists, took the names of those who were killed. And what you see here is the last page of a list of names of those who were killed. And you can see it goes up to 911 is the last name. It says the names of people and their ages. Um, and we have the names of 911 people were killed. And then it's stamped by the rabbi. Now, um, that's 911. After A few years after, the Soviet government did a survey of pogrom victims and concluded that these lists include about, and here, by the way, here's another, uh, another group of lists, another list of those, uh, another, another way that names of victims were taken um, through testimonies where the names were given. And this is a page of the memorial book of Praskurov. Um, talking about this about this uh, massacre, but um, in the aftermath in 1921, when the Soviet government came in, they did a survey and they took all of these lists of names of people who were killed and statistically determined that those lists included about a third of the total number of names of people killed. If we take lists like this that exist for all of the towns, and these lists are available in the YIVO archives and elsewhere, we get 33,000 names. So we have the names of 33,000 people who were killed um, in these pogroms. And if we take that as one third of the total number of victims, which is what the Soviet survey concluded, that comes to a death toll of about 100,000. Uh, about 40,000 were killed directly as a result of the violence, and another 60,000 or so probably died in the aftermath of the violence because they lost their houses and died of disease or died of their wounds um, and died for other reasons directly related to the violence. This is a map that you can't see all that well, um, but that shows the locations of many of the pogroms. Uh, there were about 1,000 separate incidents, separate pogroms, and about 500 different locales. Um, many of them took place in the same, many towns had multiple pogroms, multiple um, armies came in and perpetrated atrocities against the Jewish population and other, you know, militaries like that or, or um, bandits like that Lechovich gang uh, could have come into multiple towns on the same day. Um, much like, you know, if we're trying to count massacres, it's very difficult to do. If just we think of that October 7th massacre in Israel, um, do we count the massacre in each town as a different massacre or do we put them all together? You know, it's always complicated um, in how you count. And I'll point out that, you know, these numbers are difficult, too. And we saw that in Israel where their initial estimates, you know, changed very drastically during the first few days. And then uh, they said 1,400. Now they've concluded 1,200. Um, they've identified the remains of 900. And this is, you know, with modern techniques that we have. Um, so one can imagine that these numbers are very difficult to ascertain. But I think it's safe to say that about 100,000 Jews were killed directly as a result of this type of violence. So I knew that there had been pogroms during the Russian Revolutionary War, uh, as I think did most historians, or most historians of Russian Jewish history. But I didn't realize quite the extent of them. 100,000 people killed. And then when I realized after speaking to these people that this is in the very same regions in which the first massacres of the Holocaust took place, just 20 years later, 1920, 1941, so 21, 22 years later um, is when the Holocaust massacres took place. And for these communities to have survived this type of trauma and then only 20, 22 years later, seeing another wave of violence, 
that I started to wonder if they were connected and to look for connections. And also, I started to wonder what people knew about them. How is it possible that 100,000 people were killed in this type of violence and we didn't know? So I was wondering if people knew about it at the time. And I started to go to interwar literature and look and see, in fact, not only did they know about it, but everybody was talking about it. It's kind of been forgotten because the Holocaust completely overwhelmed it. But here's an article from the New York Times in September 1919 saying mass meeting here is that 127,000 Jews have been killed and 6 million are in peril from 1919. And I want to read you the last sentence of this article in the New York Times, again, September 8th, 1919. This fact that the population of 6 million souls in Ukraine and in Poland have received notice through action and by word that they are going to be completely exterminated, this fact stands before the whole world as the paramount issue of the present day. And in fact, you can read many newspapers, many articles, many short stories from the interwar period saying exactly this, that this violence that we have seen against Jews in Ukraine and uh, in Poland at the time also is only the beginning. And Jews of Ukraine and Poland are going to be completely exterminated. And one may ask then, you know, why didn't they do anything? And the answer is, you know, the Jews did do a lot. They petitioned the world powers who were meeting in Paris for the peace treaties that, were end, that, would, that would end the war at the time. And they managed to secure for themselves minority rights in Poland and Romania. They tried to establish their own state in Palestine and emigrated en masse in Palestine. They tried to emigrate to the United States until the National Origins Act closed the doors to the United States. And they emigrated to the Russian interior and participated in the establishment of a new country in Russia, the Soviet Union, that outlawed anti-Semitism, that actually prosecuted pogrom perpetrators. So they did a lot, actually, to try to prevent this next wave. But the tragedy is that they didn't do is that even all that they did was not enough. Um, I want to talk a little bit about another aspect of this and another tragic part, and that's that the country that was trying to be established during this period, Ukraine, was actually supposed to be a pluralistic multinational country. This is a currency um, printed by the Ukrainian government in 1918, and you can see that it includes on one side it's Ukrainian, and this is the other side, that includes the currency number in Russian, in Polish, and at the bottom in Yiddish. And it is, to the best of my knowledge, the first time that any paper currency ever had been printed in Yiddish. Uh, and this was printed by the Ukrainian government, the very same government whose military perpetrated many of the pogroms against Jews. Uh, and I think that's also interesting because it tells us about this disconnect and this chaotic situation in which the government of Ukraine that was legitimately trying to establish a pluralistic government. I mean, the government of Ukraine established a Jewish, uh, a Jewish secretariat and had a, Jew, had a Jewish member of a cabinet specifically in charge of Jewish affairs, such that it was celebrated around the world. This is an article, this is a line from the Yiddish language uh, Der Tog out of New York, saying, for the first time in all Jewish history, the Jewish people will be recognized by the government as an equal part of the general population, not only in a civil political sense, but in a national sense, celebrating this promise of equality that the Ukrainian government provided. And in fact, you know, in another lecture that I could give, I can talk about how the origins of multiculturalism actually come from Ukraine. Um, quite deliberately, multiculturalism as a term was introduced in Canada um, by a bicultural commission uh, during the 
first Trudeau years during the Pierre Elliott Trudeau years. But the people who set it up were three Ukrainians um, who were trying to import the experience of the Ukrainian national government in 1918-1919 to Canada with this goal of multinationalism, multiculturalism. So who then perpetrated this violence? And the answer is that all of the different parties perpetrated the violence. The Poles um, perpetrated violence against Jews, believing that the Jews were siding with the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians perpetrated violence against Jews, believing that they were siding with the Poles. The Germans accused the Jews of being allies of the Russians, and the Russians accused them of being allies to the Germans, um, because Yiddish and German sound a lot alike. The Red Army persecuted Jews, the Bolshevik Red Army persecuted Jews because they regarded Jews as capitalists and speculators. Um, Everybody else persecuted Jews because they thought of Jews as being Bolsheviks. So whichever side somebody was on, they could always find a Jew to blame because Jews, in fact, were on all sides. There was no unified Jewish position. Jews sided with all of the different armies, meaning that anybody could look at the Jews and say, oh, the Jews are siding with the others. This is just a chart that shows who's responsible for the pogroms. According to this chart, it says the Poles were responsible for 38 pogroms. Petlura, who was the head of the Ukrainian army, was responsible for 54. Denikin, who was the head of the Russian army, was responsible for, 50, for 93. And then bands, which are those peasant bandits, those roaming gangs of peasant bandits, were responsible for 509, um, is the way this puts it. Um, in fact, the peasant bandits were certainly responsible for the most pogroms, but not necessarily the most deadly, um, because they were peasants, not an, not, an arm, not an army. So the most deadly pogroms were perpetrated by the Russian imperial army, by the Denikin army. And I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, I just have this um, picture of a store in Zhitomir, in the town of Zhitomir, after a pogrom. And you can see that the store has been ransacked. And this is a dry goods store. And I have this picture because it shows the motivation of so much of the pogroms. As I mentioned, many are motivated simply by peasant hunger and peasants looking for alcohol and looking for goods, and they can find those in the Jewish stores. So... That's, where, that's largely what they're after. I can, I, even armies did that. So the pogrom in Praskurov is motivated in part by the army, this Ukrainian army, had just been established. The Ukrainian state had just been established a few months before. And the military is getting these units of peasants together that they're putting together and calling it a unit. And the army doesn't have the ability to supply its own, or the government doesn't have the ability to supply its own army. So what they say to the army is, you conquer this town and put down the uprising in this town, and then treat yourselves to all of your equipment from the center of town. And you can see, if you read the memoirs of military commanders, they'll say in the town of Proskurov or whatever, you know, we requisitioned 5,000 boots from the local leather workers. And on that same day, The Jews write, there was a pogrom and the army came in and it killed everybody and took away all of the leather. And you can see the different perspectives where they're viewing it as a requisition. They're taking what they believe is theirs to supply the army. And they're doing it by killing the store owners uh, and looting the liquor stores, looting the dry goods stores, looting the leather stores. So that's a large uh, motivation of these pogroms. Another motivation that becomes increasingly strong over time is this anti-Bolshevik motivation and the belief that Bolsheviks and Jews are one and the same. And I have here a few 
uh, postcards to show that. So this is a, a postcard that was put out by the, by the White Army, by the Russian Imperial Army, and it says the coat of arms of Lev Trotsky. Leon Trotsky was the head of the Red Army. He was also the image of the Bolshevik Revolution to the West. Vladimir Lenin actually led the revolution, but he was there in Petrograd. He was very far away leading the government. The person who was the face of the revolution to the Western world and to ordinary people was Leon Trotsky, uh, who came from a Jewish background. He was the minister of foreign affairs to the first to the Soviet government. He was also the head of the Red Army. Very, very visible figure. And as a result of the prominence of Trotsky, as well as a few other Jews in the upper echelons of the army and the upper echelons of the Bolshevik leadership, the myth was perpetrated that all Bolsheviks are Jews and all Jews are Bolsheviks. And that became a very powerful and dangerous um, myth. So what you see here, again, it says the coat of arms of Lev Trotsky. It says Talmud is a Jewish star. Um, and it's a vision, it's a version of the Russian imperial eagle, um, which was Janus-faced, had two faces. But instead of an eagle face, you can see that it's been turned into the great Russian imperial eagle, the majestic eagle, has been turned into a, a stereotype of a Jewish face with the hooked nose and the thick lips um, and the thick earlobes. And instead of carrying a scepter and a Fabergé egg, it's carrying a fish and an onion you know, symbols of the stinky foods the Jews eat. Um, so it's as though saying, you know, look what the Jews have done to the Tsar. Look at what the Jews have done to the Russian imperial um, government. And here's another one. This, as you can see, is Christ being led to the cross at Golgotha. And instead of the Pharisees, instead of the Jews of the, of the Bible leading Christ to the cross. It's Red Army sailors and soldiers. And looking on from the side, there you see our good friend Leon Trotsky, um, looking on as though Trotsky is the new Caiaphas, the new high priest who led Jesus to the cross. So this is taking stereotypes, taking images that ordinary folks have of Jews as Christ killers and saying to them, those Christ killers, they're the Bolsheviks. They're in charge. And why is this such effective propaganda? Because what are the Bolsheviks promising the peasants? They're promising the peasants land, bread, and peace, right? If you're a peasant, those are pretty good things that you would want. So if you are an old elite, if you're the Russian Imperial Army, a member of the old elite, and you want to convince the peasants not to follow the Bolsheviks, what do you do? You can't say, you know, we're going to give you autocracy, and we're going to take your land away and give it back to the landowners. That's not going to gain them support. So instead, they say those people promising you land, bread, and peace, they're just Jews, that you can't trust them. And everybody takes this affective disposition, this old idea they have, oh, yeah, Jews, they're the cheats from the you know, book. We, they're the people we deal with in the marketplace. They're the Christ killers. And so we can't trust the Bolsheviks because they're Jews. So it's a very effective technique of getting the peasant population to support the old imperial elites um, rather than supporting the Bolsheviks. And this becomes, as the war increases, this becomes a very important component of the propaganda. Also, Trotsky, who runs the Red Army, cracks down on pogroms. And the Red Army perpetrates some of the first pogroms, but then Trotsky says, enough, soldiers, you're not allowed to target Jews anymore. And he actually executes the head of military units that 
that um, perpetrate pogroms against Jews. He shows that that's not permitted. As a result of which, Jews start to join the Red Army. You know, when these pogroms started, many Jews formed little self-defense brigades, but they were quickly overwhelmed by these imperial armies, you know, by the old Russian imperial army. What are they going to do with a bunch of Jews who are in a self-defense brigade with a couple of pistols? Um, but the Red Army really protected them. And people living in these towns, one division, one military unit after another would come into town, perpetrate atrocities. And each military division would gather the Jews in the center of town and march them to the outskirts of town and kill them or rob them and perpetrate atrocities against them. But the Bolsheviks, the Red Army, they came into town. They gathered the Jews into the center of town. They said to the Jews, join us. We have saved you. We're going to liberate you. Join us and help us liberate the next village over. And the Jews would say, sounds good. And they would join the Red Army. And then the next village over comes and sees, and look who's joining the Red Army, the Jews. And so it perpetuates this stereotype that identifies Jews and Bolsheviks, because the Bolsheviks protect them. And so the Jews do, in fact, join the Bolsheviks. And when Jews hear about this, and they hear that, oh, the Bolsheviks, they protect us, they don't perpetrate pogroms, the Red Army comes into town, and the Jews applaud. Um, and they're happy. And everybody remembers 20 years later, after the Bolsheviks perpetrate real atrocities against those towns, they remember 20 years earlier, the Jews welcomed them into town. And that becomes important. Um, I want to talk about one other aspect, which is who these warlords actually were, who these peasant bandits were. These are pictures of Ilya Struk's men, some of the most feared bandits of this period. And you can see they're kids. These are 14, 15, 16-year-olds dressing up as Cossack warriors. You know, they're really playing dress-up in a photo studio. They're wearing outfits that don't fit them. His stallion is like a you know, little toy horse that he's balancing on. Um, you know, these are just peasant kids. And that, in fact, is who they were. Many of the perpetrators of these pogroms were 15, 16, 17 years old. They were people whose weren't tilling the land. Their fathers weren't tilling the land because their fathers had gone off to fight in World War I, and many of their fathers had been killed. And they're left to fend for themselves. And complete chaos is reigning, and they perpetrate atrocities against Jews. And we have plenty of testimonies of pogrom victims saying, oh, I knew so-and-so, Mrs. So-and-so, I'd known her for you know 20 years, and her son was perpetrating atrocities in town. And, and she told her son, you know, don't do this. Don't go bother the Jews. Don't pester the Jews. But her son did it anyway. And so we have plenty of testimonies like that. Or other people saying, come hide in my house. My son is on a rampage. He'll never find you if you're in, if you're in my house. So this sort of thing, where it was the younger generation. There's also a generational element of the younger generation lashing out uh, with violence. What happens is after the Bolsheviks take power, um, the Bolsheviks actually punish these pogrom perpetrators. And here I have a sentence of one of the perpetrators or a few of the perpetrators of the Slovichna pogrom. And what's interesting is you can see their ages um, over here. One of the pogrom perpetrators, so 72 people were killed and 100 were injured. Um, in this pogrom, 72 killed, 100 injured. You can see that this guy, Hulievich, was 18 years old. Um, and the other one, can't find it now, but anyway, uh, 26. The other guy was 26 years old. So this means uh, at the time of the pogrom, they were 16 and 20. So the 16-year-old is still a kid. The 20-year-old is already an adult. Um, but in any case, these are young people. 
and they're being sentenced to death. Um, and the people who are sentencing them to death, the revolutionary tribunal that tries these pogrom perpetrators, if you see the names up there, it is led by, well, I can't really reach, but it's led by Comrade Feldman and Comrade Ratner is the secretary, two very Jewish names. And this is common as these revolutionary tribunals came through the countryside in the 1920s perp uh, trying pogrom perpetrators. They kill these young men who had committed atrocities against Jews. And again, 20 years later, um, people remember, oh yeah, the Jews took power. And what did they do? They went and they killed my son. They went and they killed my cousin. All my cousin did was, yeah, he you know, went into town and he was a rabble rouser like everybody was. Everybody was pestering the Jews, but they came in and they killed him. And in fact, tens of thousands of peasants were killed for perpetrating pogroms like this. The pogroms also, and I'm kind of concluding here, pogroms also led to a wave of emigration. About 600,000 Jews fled the Soviet Union entirely and a million or more moved internally. And many of them fled specifically to Germany. Um, and Einstein, who was living in Berlin at the time, about three to 500,000 Jews made it through Berlin at some point in time, fleeing the pogroms. And Einstein pointed out the confrontational attitude toward these unfortunate refugees who've escaped hell that Eastern Europe is today has become an efficient and politically successful weapon used by demagogues. Einstein pointing out that these demagogues, these new right-wing parties emerging in Germany in 1919, were railing against these refugees, against Jewish refugees from pogroms. Um, they claimed that they were importing Bolshevism, even though, of course, it was Jews fleeing Bolshevism, but still they were charged with importing Bolshevism. And you can see this in one of the very first issues of the Volkischer Beobachter, the German, the Nazi newspaper, um, uh, one of the very first issues after it was purchased by the Nazis in 1920. And the headline is Against the Eastern European Jews. Um, this, we, I think we haven't paid quite enough attention to how much the early Nazi movement arose as an anti-refugee movement against these Jewish refugees um, from pogroms who were streaming into Berlin. So I think those are the three connections um, between the pogroms of the revolutionary period and the Holocaust. Uh, one of them is this immigration, that this wave of refugees into Germany led to the rise of right-wing movements or helped lead to the rise of right-wing movements like the Nazis in Germany. The second is the retaliation of Bolsheviks uh, in the 1920s against the perpetrators of pogroms led to a perception that Jews were Bolsheviks and that the Jews were punishing the peasants. And so in 1941, when the Germans invaded again and said to the Ukrainians, um, as well as to others, now take your revenge against the Jews, they were all willing to take their revenge against the Jews for the crimes that the Bolsheviks had committed. And the third is that it just create, made the impossible possible. The idea of murdering Jews in their midst, the idea that Jews living in a town can be systematically murdered. So when the Germans came in with what at the time might have seemed like an unimaginable idea to go kill all the Jews in every town, the locals understood what that meant because they had had something similar only 20 years before, that the unimaginable had already become imaginable. And I think the lesson that we get from this entire story is that violence begets violence, that one wave of violence often leads to the next wave of violence. And I'll end on that with a note that that is why 
I remain a pessimist. All right. Um, I can take questions. Or, yeah, thanks. What parallels do you see today in the U.S. with the rise of alt-right nationalism? <laughs> Interesting question. What parallels do I see in the U.S. with the rise to alt-right nationalism? Parallels. I don't see any parallels. Um, as they say, you know, what's the history doesn't repeat itself. It rhymes. Um, I think there are lessons that we can draw from the past um, and lessons that can warn us about rhetoric and about violence. Um, but parallels, I don't see. I think they're quite different situations. Um, I am deeply concerned about the rise of the alt-right, but I don't. Um, yeah, it's hard. I, I wouldn't. I'd be very cautious in drawing specific parallels. Uh, that answers it. Uh, next question. Um, can you compare uh, two different motives for pogromists, greed versus hatred? Um, I can. I mean, they are, so greed versus hatred, they're combined, right? I don't think they, it's not really a comparison, it's more of a putting them together. And I think this is, you know, one of the, there's a few innovations about our studies of the Holocaust that have allowed me to do this study. Um, one of them is kind of the recognition that so much of the Holocaust took place in close shootings by people near their homes. And that resembles the pogroms a lot more than, say, if we imagine Auschwitz as the Holocaust. The pogroms of the Revolutionary War seem very distant to Auschwitz. And so when I'm talking to people sometimes about saying that they're are continuities between these pogroms and the Holocaust. And people say, well, there's no gas chambers. How can that be? Um, but a lot of scholarship on the Holocaust lately has focused on the initial parts of the Holocaust that were more similar to pogroms. And that has allowed us to make the analogies that I'm making now. Um, the other innovation Holocaust studies is the recognition that greed played a big component in the Holocaust. And I think that's also what allows us to see continuities between this um, the pogroms that I'm talking about in the Holocaust is that, you know, in the Holocaust, uh, these massacres that took place in 1941, peasants after the massacres, peasants came in with carts and they took away the property of Jews and they used that property and they moved into the homes of Jews. And the same thing happened in 1918 to 1921. So people are motivated by greed and by hate. I mean, it's greed that you know, allows them to cart away the belongings and that um, where they profit. I mean, they actually profit from the murder of Jews because they can take that property. But it's also hatred um, that allows them to imagine profiting from that. So they're combined, you know, they're both factors uh, in it. Another interesting question is, um, can you draw a parallel with the Baltic states? Was there a similar story? Yeah, all this with parallels. The... Um, the not exactly. Um, the Baltic states do not have this level of violence during the revolutionary era, but do have this level of violence during the pogroms. Um, so actually, a lot of the critiques of my book have said, well, you know, the pogroms took place in Ukraine, so that may play a role in explaining the violence of Ukraine, but how do you explain the violence in the Baltics? And to that, I mean, it's a legitimate point, um, 
but I think that the word of the pogroms was, and, and evidence of the pogroms and knowledge of the pogroms was well known in the Baltics as well. So it depends on the territory. They were well known in that region in general. It's kind of like asking, you know, an analogy that I often use um, that has some uncomfortable components, but I'll say it anyway. And that's how we become more accustomed to this type of violence. The first pogrom makes the second pogrom easier. And an analogy that I have used is school shootings in the United States. You know, when I was in high school, the last thing anybody ever thought about was that somebody would come into the school and with a weapon. And after Columbine, that became more normalized. And it doesn't mean that there's a direct relationship between Columbine and Sandy Hook or Uvalde. Um, they're very far away from each other. And Colombia is further from Sandy Hook than, you know, than Lithuania is from Ukraine, I think. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I'd have to actually calculate, but I'm quite, I'm quite certain. Um, and, uh, um, but yet, there's a mental barrier that is broken with this type of violence. And once the mental barrier is broken, it becomes easier uh, to carry out. So it's a type of argument that I can't, you know, prove statistically, but it seems that, you know, now we become more accustomed to them and each one seems less horrific. And there's also a one-upmanship with each mass shooting. So I think there is an analogy there that can be made between the way mass shootings spread and even though, so one could say that how can you say that something in Sandy Hook has any relationship to something that took place however many miles away, uh, you know, uh, Denver is. And I think that we can all understand that there probably is some relationship, but I don't know how to articulate it better. Another interesting question that uh, deals with today. What are your thoughts on today's wave of anti-Semitism compared to past history? Um. Also scary. I mean, there's a lot going on right now, and the, I can answer so many of the questions that you're asking with. It's scary. Um, yeah, I think uh, what we see that is similar, I mean, anti-Semitism, as they say, is always rising. And as far as I have been following it, um, every year it seems that anti-Semitism is rising. There's more anti-Semitism than there was the year before. But yet somehow at the same time, there's a lot an less anti-Semitism than there was 30 years before, 30 years ago. So I can't quite reconcile that. Um, I think it has something to do with the statistics and the way that we count incidents of anti-Semitism and a lot of things that we used to shrug over that we didn't regard as anti-Semitism we now find very disturbing. Um, but I'm not convinced in general that anti-Semitism Uh, is rising in the United States, although it certainly is in the last few years, but in the long, longer, long durée, I'm not convinced. But the similarity that I do see is that everybody seems to be blaming the Jews from every direction. And it used to be that we needed only fear anti-Semitism from the far right, um, I think. And now I think we can fear anti-Semitism from all directions. And we're seeing a lot of anti-Semitism from progressives and a lot of anti-Semitism from the left and a lot of anti-Semitism from in between. And it seems to me that regardless of what political side people are on, uh, they are turning and blaming things on the Jews or not paying attention uh, to Jewish concerns. So that's where I see some similarities between that situation. This is an anti-Semitism uh, cross cuts across traditional political divides. Uh, now, a more historical question, a very big one. Uh, this guest writes, thanks for this brilliant talk. You make a compelling connection between 1918 to 21 and the Holocaust. 
how far back would you go with this chain of violence and how far away geographically? Yeah, how far back would I go and how far across geographically? I, mean, I do think violence comes in waves, right? There's the 1881 pogroms, which you've all heard about and which are really quite famous. Um, they're regarded as a major turning point in Jewish history. When I first studied Jewish history as an undergraduate at McGill University with Professor Gershon Hundert, who just passed away a couple of weeks ago, um, but when I studied Jewish history with him, you know, we had a class that divided Jewish history from before 1881 to after 1881. It was a major, a major turning point. Um, in fact, the death toll from 1881 was about two dozen people were killed um, in the pogroms of 1881. Then Kishinev, 1903 Kishinev pogrom, 49 people killed. So more than that. Um, and also, you know, was had an enormous impact around the world. Between 1903 and 1906, in the wave of pogroms that followed Kishinev, somewhere between three to 5,000 were killed. And then 1918 to 1921, about 100,000. And 1941 to 1945, uh, six million. So we see a huge escalation every 20 years. Um, I think that's not uncommon in genocides. Uh, the Armenian genocide, for instance, was preceded 20 years earlier by the Hamidian massacres. Um, there was also a great deal of violence in Rwanda 20 years before the Rwandan genocide. There seems to be something generational um, in violence where each wave, where it comes in waves and each wave gets worse and worse. Um, I can't, you know, statistically show that, or at least I haven't statistically shown that, but it's my impression. Um, and I've recently you know, been in touch with other scholars who have said similar things um, about the areas of the world that they study. Uh, I think there's something about this wave of violence. Uh, so I do think that we could go back as far as we want. I think 1918 to 1921 is distinguished from earlier waves of violence in Ukraine um, in the severity of it, um, the numbers, but also in the multiple forces that converge, as I said, in which Jews are, Jews are targeted no matter which side they're on and by a variety of different actors target Jews for different reasons. Um, and that's where I think uh, there's this convergence of um, convergence of reasons for targeting Jews that seems distinct or at least seems distinctly different from earlier waves. So the final question is historiographical. In the book Bloodlands uh, by Timothy Snyder, he sees a major impact on Hitler by Stalin's violence in the early 1930s. What is your impression of his views? Yeah, I totally agree with him on that, um, that there is a big, uh, that there's a prehistory to the Holocaust. You know, Tim dates it to the 1930s. Um, I would say it actually goes a little bit earlier than that. Um, so I kind of would say it begins even before 1930, before the 1930s. You know, he's looking at the overlap of the areas that were ruled by Stalin and by Hitler. And I agree that that's absolutely integral to understanding the Holocaust, that we can't understand the Holocaust unless we understand the Soviet period. And I would add to that that we also need to understand, um, understand the pogroms a lot. Um, so I, I agree with that. And actually, he was one of the readers of my manuscript before I submitted it. It gave me fantastic comments. I mean, he's not only a great writer. I know Amelia's friends with, uh, with him, too. Um, but he's not only a great writer. He's also a great reader and um, had some very helpful comments. But yeah, I completely agree with him. And we just extended a little bit further, too. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs>